Very good morning to you. Big shout out to Alex on the sound desk. Thank you so much, Alex, for all you do. You're such a legend. We really appreciate it. No easy feat. My name's Neil. I'm married to the wonderful Kate. Together, we lead this amazing church, the Southwest London Vineyard. Last week, we began a series looking at the story of the Bible. And as we, as we start the, the new year, we're kind of trying to sort of follow on from a series that we did in the run-up to the summer and over the summer uh, last year. And really what we're wanting to do is put the Bible um, front and center as always. And the plan for this series is an attempt to take a look at the whole sort of narrative arc of the whole of um, the scriptures and try and break it down into bite-sized chunks. Last week we began the series, we started... Uh, by looking at the story of creation, which is where the kingdom begins. This week, uh, we'll look at the fall, which is where the kingdom falls apart, uh, where the kingdom rebels. Uh, then we'll look at Israel, uh, where the kingdom begins again, and then on to Jesus, where the king comes with his kingdom, and then the church as the kingdom is extended. And then lastly, we'll have a look at new creation when the king returns to rule and reign forever and ever. And if you were here last week, one of the things that came out when we were looking at the story of creation, uh, indeed one of the themes that recurs, and we'll see this recurring again and again and again throughout the series, but primarily throughout the whole narrative arc of the scriptures, is that first and foremost, this is a story about relationship. It's about our relationship with God, it's about our relationship with ourselves, it's about our relationship with one another, it's about our relationship with the world in which we find ourselves. The whole story, this whole story, the story of the Bible is a story all about relationship. And alongside all of that, last week uh, we saw from the creation narrative, we saw that everything that God created, you know, the heavens and the sky, the, 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 the seas, the fish, the birds, the trees, everything, all of it, um, we saw that it was good. In fact, Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, we read that, but the reality is, you know, we know that's true, we, we recognize that, we accept that, and there is indeed, there's very much that is very good in the world, but it doesn't take very much for us to realize that the world um, is also pretty broken. Um, we look at our lives, and depending on the circumstances and situations that we may currently find ourselves in, uh, we may be suffering, we may be going through a difficult time, we may be suffering with health problems. People that we know and love may be suffering with health problems. There's sickness and there's um, pain. And, uh, we look around the world, the world around us, and it's not difficult to see that there's a lot of brokenness um, in the world. It's not difficult to see circumstances and situations and realize that there is actually a lot that is not good. At least it feels like that. As I say, there's sickness and there's suffering, there's pain and there's death, there's violence and there's injustice and on and on and on and just goes on. And as followers of Jesus, we, if we're being honest, we feel that tension. On the one hand, we're holding fast, we're desperately trying to hold fast to this belief that in the language of last week's story, the world is very good. God created it. And, you know, we see and experience this all the time. We, 
experience it with friends and with family. You're walking in Richmond Park. Look at today. It's a glorious day. It's, oh, thank God. This is such a good world. You know, you experience it every time you're watching David Attenborough you know, or whatever, apart from when the poor animals get their throats ripped out. But, you know, there is so much in the world that is good. It's an incredible world. It's, you, you know, you find yourself on holiday and you're at the Grand Canyon or wherever and you're just gobsmacked by the beauty, this incredibleness of the world in which we find ourselves. But, as I say, um, we would be deluding ourselves if at the same time we didn't recognize that something's gone horribly wrong somewhere. And so, quite naturally, we find ourselves asking, you know, why is, why is everything, why is the world so messed up? Why is it that for all of our science and all of our technology and all our education and all of our experience and all these years of evolution, these thousands of years of human history, why are we in the mess that we're in? And um, we kind of ask that question, but then if we're honest again, we know too well that the problem isn't just out there somewhere. When we ask that question, when we reflect on that question, it doesn't take us long to realize that the problem isn't just in other people. Actually, it's in me. It's not just in them. There's something wrong with me. Um, why am I so messed up? You know, why are the people around me so messed up? Why is, you know, why is your spouse or your fiance or your boyfriend or your flatmate or your house group leader or your church or your pastor, you know? Why are they so messed up? Why are they so broken? Why are they so dysfunctional? Uh, when you find out the answer to that question, let me know. Um, but the story that we're going to look at this morning, I think, attempts to explain how we got into this mess. Now, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, but before we get to that, just a word of warning. Um, Genesis chapter 3, this is a very familiar narrative, and, and, and maybe in some ways it's too familiar, but it's also pretty strange. Um, it's pretty weird, it's pretty odd. In case you'd forgotten, um, there's a talking snake in the opening line. And to make matters worse, in true Harry Potter style, Eve um, apparently is fluent in parcel tongue. And um, then, just to keep us interested, there's a magic tree. And um, did I mention that everyone's running around stunt naked? Of course. And if you're reading that story, and we just kind of think, well, of course, you know, but if you're reading that story for the first time, you can understand why somebody might ask the question of what are these people taking. Um, now, last week, you may recall that I was saying that we need to remember that while the Bible is written for us, it's not written to us. Uh, so we have to bear that in mind as we read it, especially when we come to these sort of um, early narratives. And instead of trying to make the writer fit in with our expectations, of how we think it should have been written to make perfect sense for us. We're the ones who have to do the hard work of trying to understand them and their culture and their language and their purpose and their intention in writing it all down. And when it comes to Genesis chapter 3, there are some of us who like to read it as if we're reading, I don't know, today's Telegraph or you know The Guardian or whatever it is, whatever newspaper you read. And, and if you're reading it as if it's like top-draw journalism or sort of academic history, for example, you know, and you think there was an actual talking snake and there was just one man and there was just one woman and they were naked around the magic tree and, or whatever it is. That's absolutely great. That's, that's, that's fine. However, just a word of caution to those of you who find yourself in that camp. Remember that the Bible is indeed scripture, but it's also literature. On the other hand, if you're um, more in the camp of like, no, I don't read it as, as sort of historical 
fact, you know, or like I'm reading the news or whatever, I read this whole thing as a, a myth, it's like a metaphor or whatever, um, you know, Adam in the story, and it's not someone's like actual first name, Adam's just a Hebrew word meaning humanity, Eve is just a Hebrew word meaning life, and everyone knows that the snake is just a standard sort of ancient world symbol for evil. So if you're someone who reads the story as a metaphor about humanity and life and evil, that's also great, okay, that's, that's absolutely fine. All I would say to you is, remember that what you're reading, whilst indeed it is literature, is also scripture inspired by God. So when we come to this story, whether there or not there was a talking snake and a magic tree, there's something about all of this that's very, very important, and we would be very foolish indeed to merely dismiss it. Whether or not this actually happened the way someone on Newsnight would report it uh, is irrelevant, really. This is a real and very important story. And my point is, however you read this story, and there's ample room for us here at Southwest London Vineyard for a whole range of readings. I don't really care, honestly, that much. What I want to say to you is, however you read this story, I would say that this is the most profound story ever written on the problem of evil. So wherever you are on that spectrum, I just want you to spend, suspend judgment for a few minutes and let the story speak for itself. Um, Genesis chapter 3. I've had this hit for ages, and I just feel like I feel like I should use it today. Huh? Water? Oh, 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 oh that's better. I could sleep now. Um, Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now, the snake was more crafty. John Wimby used to do this, right? Okay, like when he got to my age. So I think I can go over there. Um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, uh, before we go any further, do you notice that no one tells us like where this snake comes from? It's just this there. And just like last week when we were looking at the story of um, creation, there's all kinds of backstory here, none of which we're actually privy to. And, and, we read, and it irritates the heck out of us. It's like, why don't you just explain a little bit more, and, and our tendency is to think of Genesis chapter 1, as we were looking at last week, as the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, but the reality is it's not. You know, there's all sorts of stuff in here, there's all sorts of backstory that we just don't really know about, um, and so we find ourselves asking questions like, who, who is this snake? Where did this snake come from? Where did evil come from? Why is this snake even in the garden of Eden, and the thing that's really frustrating for us is it just doesn't say. And even though many of us may be under the impression that the Garden of Eden was perfect, the Bible actually never says that it was perfect. It, it says that it was very good. It doesn't say that it was perfect. I mean, how can it be? There's a talking snake right in the middle of it. So my point is this. Like so much of the Bible, there's mystery. There's a lot of mystery. And there is mystery about the subject of evil that even the Bible doesn't attempt to unpack. So when we find ourselves thinking about evil and talking about evil and attempting to sit up on stage and teach or preach about evil, um, we need to do it with an open mind and uh, with a whole lot of humility. Okay, let's keep reading. Chapter 3, verse 1. The snake... The snake said to the woman, did God really say 
you must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, Well, we may not eat from we may not eat fruit from the we may eat fruits from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So what does the snake do? The snake entices and the snake tempts. And first of all, what he does is he challenges God's word. He challenges God's command. Verse 1, did God really say that? That's the first thing that he does. And then secondly, it's like he challenges the very nature of good and evil itself. Have a look at verse 4. Basically what he's saying is, like, you know, God said that will kill you. You know, that that will bring you death. But that's not true at all, right? In actual fact, it won't kill you. It will bring you life. And then, finally, the snake challenges God's love. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And it's basically like, God, you know what? God is not a loving father. Uh, He's petty, he's insecure, he's jealous. He's he's not someone to be trusted. And... um, God says, look, trust me, I'm good, the tree is bad, trust me. And the snake says, God is bad, the tree is good, trust me instead. So the temptation of Eve is about what's she going to do with this problem, this challenge of good and evil? Is she going to play the role of God and set herself up as judge and jury? And and instead of trusting God, is she going to trust the snake and or herself? And the reality is, every single one of us face these exact same temptations every single day of the week, in our relationships, in our actions, in our thoughts. And the the temptations are exactly the same. We face these questions and these challenges that come to us, you know, about God's word. And it's like, did God really say? You know, particularly now, it's like, does the Bible really say that? Is that what the Bible really means? Like, are you sure about that? Um, then we get this temptation and this challenge around what's actually um, good and evil. And, you know, we know what Jesus says. We know what the writers of the Bible have to say. We know what God has said through the prophets about so many things, and yet we don't know if we like it. And so we try and kind of readapt it, and we try and convince ourselves that because it's something that I want to do, I can convince myself that actually that thing is good. It's not evil. It's not bad. And if I want to do it or be it or have it or whatever, I can. And actually, I should. And then there's this challenge around God's love. You know, is God actually a loving father? I look at the circumstances in my life and I think about the things I'm facing and the things that people around me are facing and the suffering that they're going through. And I think, is God actually really a loving father? Um, And so often we fall for the lie that actually, you know, maybe he's not. You know, if God actually were a loving father, um, I wouldn't be in this mess. I wouldn't be in this situation. My loved ones wouldn't be in this situation. I wouldn't be facing this thing that I'm facing. And actually, if God were a loving father, he'd want me to be happy. He'd never want me to deny myself. And so I should just do whatever I feel. I should just enjoy myself doing X, Y, or Z or whatever. You know, God must want me to be happy. So therefore, this can't be sin. And honestly, every single one of us, we face those temptations and those challenges every single day of our lives. Let's have a look and see what happens um, next. Have a look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, understandably, she took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Clever boy. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate and this story, as we know, is called The Fall, because it's basically the story of the, the, the fall of humanity from grace. You know, it's where we get the, the idea of original sin. This is the first time ever sin, basically. And it raises the really brilliant, awesome questions. What is sin? Um, uh, one theologian describes sin sort of in the context of what we were talking about last week as the culpable disturbance of shalom. The culpable disturbance of shalom. Last week we were talking about, remember we were talking about shaloming uh, the world, you know, I turned it into a, a verb. Um, sin is the culpable disturbance of that shaloming. And it's when we take God's garden-like world and we take all that is good and beautiful and true and out of our own free will, out of our own um, volition, basically we screw it up. We mess it up. Um, one writer describes it a bit like this. Um, only uh, he, instead of using the word mess, which is what I've used, he actually uses another uh, four-letter word that I thought would be best to edit out, but I'll leave it to your imagination um, to see uh, if you can work out what he says. What's the next slide? Because I... So he writes this, the vocabulary that's used to describe religious emotions hasn't gone away. It's still in circulation, but repurposed with new meanings that make people think that they know what believers are talking about when they really, really don't. And he says, case in point, the word sin, that well-known contemporary brand for ice cream and high-end chocolate truffles and lingerie in which the color red predominates and sex toys and cocktails, sin always refers to the pleasurable consumption of something. If I say the word sin to you, it's going to sound as if I'm bizarrely opposed to pleasure, and because of the ongoing link between sin and sex, it will seem likely that the root of my problem with pleasure is a problem with sex. So I won't do that, because that isn't at all what I mean. What I and other believers understand by the word I'm not saying to you has got very little to do with yummy transgression. For us, it refers to something much more like the human tendency, the human propensity to mess up. Or let's add one more word, the human propensity to mess things up. Because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, our own well-being, other people's, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratching of the itch. And it's a great definition of sin, this, this human propensity to mess 
things up. And that's exactly what we see here in these stories. Um, but this ability to mess things up has consequences. Sin has consequences. Have a look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the woman, he said, oh, make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. You know, this part of the story, as we all know, is, is often called the curse. And the, 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 the snake is cursed first, and then the ground. But do you notice when we actually read it, um, contrary to kind of popular thinking, popular opinion, Adam and Eve are not cursed by God. Not at all. Adam isn't cursed. Eve isn't cursed. You are not cursed. I'm not cursed by God. Satan or the snake is cursed. Our relationship with the earth is cursed. And, but humanity isn't. But there is fallout from humanity's sin. There are consequences to sin. And in broad strokes, um, and I haven't got time to go into it, for Eve or for the woman, it's, it's in her relationships um, to marriage and um, to family. So childbearing is now painful. Once uh, what I imagine was pure joy is now, well, um, I'm not even going to attempt to say what it is, okay? Um, you know. Uh, and there's something in here about looking to children and family, and, and maybe, dare I say it, maybe specifically to a husband or a, a life partner or something as a longed-for source of satisfaction and fulfillment that can e never, ever, ever deliver. It can never, ever possibly fulfill the yearning. Um, and if the woman is looking for relationships, for the longing of this dream man, to the, to the longing for children to fill the void, to satisfy the satisfaction, it, it's never going to happen. And if the woman's looking to that, the man is constantly trying to find his meaning, his identity, his satisfaction, his fulfillment in his work, uh, which, of course, never, ever comes. And now work has been marred by thorns and thistles. These are symbols of frustration. And for both, uh, for the woman and for the man, there's, of course there's still joy to be found in our relationships, you know, with our children uh, on occasion, uh, and in our spouse, if we have one, uh, and in our work. You know, of course that's all true, but none of them will ever bring the deep fulfillment, the deep satisfaction for what, for, the, for what we were originally intended. And that's all because of sin. This is the fallout. These are the consequences of sin. Now, the key to wrapping our head around all of this is that something has gone wrong right at the very heart of humanity. And we, we see it unfolding. Actually, we see it unraveling in these early chapters of Genesis. Um, I haven't got time to look at it. But, you know, in Genesis 4, we read about Adam and Eve's um, two sons, Cain and Abel. And what happens? Um, Cain kills his brother, Abel. And so we're, we're seeing the first resultant effect of the fall of sin 
is violence. It's, it's, it's murder. It's brutal. Uh, and then in Genesis, that, that violence rooted in sin, it becomes a theme. It's like the motif of these, certainly these early chapters of Genesis. At the end of chapter 4, we're introduced to this chap called um, Lamech. And, you know, he takes not just one wife, but he takes two wives. And so we've got the introduction of um, polygamy and violence against women is born in Genesis chapter 4. And then Lamech writes a poem, and, and we're thinking, oh, great, you know, uh, that's sweet. Uh, he's obviously, like, you know, in touch with his heart and stuff like that and emotion. And, and, and so we're thinking, oh, good, you know, this is all about shaloming and culture and art, and we're beginning to see redemption and all of that kind of stuff, until you actually read the poem, and it's all about, like, a revenge killing and violence and how he killed some poor bloke because he wounded him, and it's like this bloodbath of a poem. Um, and then in Genesis 6, it, it just gets worse. It's like reading about the Nephilim and the sons of God, and things start getting really strange again. And we don't know if the Nephilim, these sons of God, whether they're evil men or whether they're angelic beings or, or what the heck or they are. But in the story, the, the sons of God, whoever they are, start having sex with all these women. And, and the idea behind it is that sin and corruption and depravity and perversion, all these things are now spreading and infecting the whole of humanity. And so you, you're reading through Genesis and there's this escalation from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel to Lamech and then the sons of God. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and spiraling out. And so you get to Genesis 6 and uh, we come to the flood. It's like God sort of wants to wipe the slate clean and attempts to start again. And then it starts all over again. But in Genesis 9, um, the first story we read is about Noah. And Noah's in his garden one day, and we're thinking, great, okay, like we're back in the garden. Finally, someone's doing something right. They're just pottering around, you know, tending their tomatoes. And we're back in a garden, and his wife and his family, and everyone's alive, and that's like a good thing. It's a good start. And then Noah even plants a vineyard, and we're like, great, like we're shaloming again, and where would the world be without red wine? And, and things are looking up. And then what happens? Noah gets drunk, and then something really, well, you know, let's just say something not good from a child protection perspective happens between Noah and his son in the bedroom, you know, and it's like weird. And the point of it all is we've still got a problem. Houston, <laughs> we have a problem, and the problem isn't out there, it's in here, and, and despite our tendency to kind of think that, you know, and to wish it were all out there and can be fixed by certain things, you know, if only I have the right education, if only I go to the right university, if I only got the right job, if I only married the right person, if I have just the right whatever, all the planets in alignment, then everything's going to be okay. You know, but the problems that exist, you know, out there, wherever out there is, start first and foremost um, with a problem in here. And, you know, we haven't got time to get into it, but things carry on spiraling down from Genesis um, 9. Uh, you read the Gen Gen Genesis narrative, we end up with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And as the reader, we're kind of left thinking, oh, how in the heck is God going to fix this problem that the world has got itself into? And um, how is God going to get humanity out of this devastation? And, and we'll talk about that next week, and we'll talk about it the week after, and we'll talk about it the week after. And the long version um, is read the Bible, and the short version is Jesus. Uh, but for now, let's just take a step back. Are you, are you still with me? Just nod politely. So sin is this culpable um, disturbance of shalom. It's this human propensity to mess things up. And sin has consequences. And, and sin also is not 
trusting God and his vision of human flourishing. And there's all sorts of debate about what the original sin was. You know, was it pride? Was it that they wanted to be like a god? I mean, I don't know. But the temptation effectively was for Eve to decide for herself what is good and what is evil. And out of that, basically, who she's going to trust and who she's going to obey and who she's not going to trust and who she's not going to obey. And so sin at its core is this not trusting God. And it's not trusting God's vision of human flourishing. You know, um, what Jesus calls, you know, the abundant, you know, life abundant, abundant life. And sin instead is trusting the snake, trusting, you know, the voice in your head, trusting your own opinion or your own bias or your own judgment, your own upbringing, your own thinking or your own feeling on what is right. Um, and sin leads to death, uh, quite simply, not life. And we need to recapture the notion and the idea that sin isn't bad because it's forgotten, uh, forbidden, because that actually makes it really exciting, right? Anything forbidden, we want to play around with, right? So we need to get rid of the idea of the fact that, that sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. And you look at the teachings of Jesus, you know, and you look at any of the commands of God, they're not just like the right way to live. They're not just like laws. They're not like rules and regulations. They are invitations. They're like wisdom. They're the best way to live. You know, we need to really get to grips with that. All of Jesus' teachings on marriage and love and nonviolence and anxiety and money and possessions and, 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 and all of it, Jesus' teachings on everything, they're not just right. They are the very best ways to be human in this world. Jesus is the best living example of a thriving, flourishing human being. And his teachings are like the roadmap um, to what he called this you know, abundant life, invitation into true living. And our tendency is to want to make sin about things like self-control. And self-control is, is a good thing. But at the end of the day, it's, any of you who have tried to battle your persistent and ongoing sin in your life, the struggles that you have that you don't want to have because you think they're about not trusting God, they're about trusting yourself. How are you getting on with your self-control? It's not about self-control. It's actually about faith. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the snake or are you going to believe your father? Are you, um, who are you trusting? Who are you obeying? And as we wage war against the battle of sin in our lives, um, our hope, and our only hope, is in Jesus. He is our one and only hope. Everyone knows um, that we have a problem. Uh, it's just that f fewer and fewer people, certainly people that we know, um, think that Jesus is the answer. But he is. Jesus is the one and only power who can deal with the root heart of sin. And that's what we see right here in the story. And you look back in your Bible down to chapter 3, verse 15. See, there was that prophecy in there from God. Uh, it says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike heel. And there's a fascinating sort of prophecy about a descendant of Eve, this, a human being, who is going to stamp out, who's going to crush evil once and for all in the future. He's literally going to crush the snake's head. And the snake, 
as the, the head of the snake is being crushed, the snake will strike his heel. And so this victory that's pointed here, however it's going to come, we don't know how it's going to come yet, it will come at a high price. This descendant of Eve is going to experience both the poison and the pain. And, and this is like an incredibly beautiful moment right here, right after the fall. It is absolutely stunning. The first thing that God does is to curse the snake. And straight after comes the promise of Jesus. Straight after comes his grace and his goodness and his redemption. This is this beautiful glimpse forward to Jesus who will come and defeat evil and will somehow absorb all of that evil and all of the stuff that's in my own heart that's the problem, that's at the root of all of my stuff. And he will take that somehow into his own being and he will take it away and he will wipe it away forever. And uh, in theology, this prophecy um, here is called the Prince of Anglium. It's the, it's the first gospel. It's the first good news. And it's the first glimpse that we get of Jesus in the whole Bible and how one day he's going to put all the world to rights. But just very quickly, just to finish with, look at what God does. It's, um, I think it's, it's stunning, actually, personally. Um, have a look at verse 21. Um, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Um, in the ancient Near East, if you, if you um, fell out of favor, you fell out of grace with your family or with the master and the household or whatever, um, if you found yourself basically cut off, disinherited, cast out, separated, uh, broken relationships, one of the ways that that would have been demonstrated was by taking away your clothing. Um, to take someone's clothes away from them, it was, like, it was a way of demonstrating that someone had been cut off, that you had disowned them. By way of contrast, if you were to give your clothing, that was to say, listen, it doesn't matter what you've done. You're still my son, you're still my daughter, you're still part of this family. Just think back to the story of the prodigal son. The father runs out to meet his son. He feels like his son feels like he's been disowned, disinherited. He has no place. The father runs out to meet him. What does he do? He puts his robe on him. He gives him clothing. He clothes him in his brokenness, in his nakedness, his shame. He's covered in all the pig rubbish and all of that stuff, the stench of the prostitutes. His father gives him his robe and. Here, back in Genesis, what's the first thing that God does? He clothes Adam and Eve. He, he clothes them. And, and, and sin, yes, of course, is this terrible thing. has horrible consequences. But God comes. He seeks them out. He, he walks with them. He wants to walk with them in the garden of the call of the day. And he goes after them and he meets them and he goes after us and he meets us right in the midst right in the thick of our brokenness and our sin and he says he says I see you I see you I see you I see you I see that you're naked I see your nakedness I see your shame here are some clothes. 
you're my son, you are my daughter, and I love you. Why don't you stand? If we can have the band back.